Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore. Welcome to part two of our series of interviews with Michael Ratner on Reality Asserts Itself. And Michael joins us again in the studio. How are you doing, Michael? Good to be back with you, Paul. So, one more time. Michael is the President Emeritus of the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York. He's Chair of the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. He's currently the American Legal Representative for WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. And he's also author of the book, Hell No, Your Right to Dissent in the 21st Century America. And the whole biography of Michael will be down below the video player, at least a part of it. He's lived way too much life to put it all there. So we're going to pick up our discussion, Michael. Uh, I want to pick up a thread of something that came from part one. Uh, the, the extent to which Israel, your Jewish identity, was part of your identity. Your, your, it was a piece of your psychology. Uh, talk about just how much it meant to you growing up, and then we're going to kind of go to how that started to change. I mean, my identity growing up was in part family. It was an immigrant family, so the eight brothers and sisters, most of them lived in Cleveland. We ate dinner together every Saturday night, actually. And it was partly a security against being different than the other people around us, an immigrant family. Um, part of it was a heavy Jewish identity, for sure. Um, we all went to temple. It was all part of our lives. It wasn't orthodox, but it was a Jewish identity, for sure. Did your parents speak Yiddish at home? Oh, they spoke Yiddish till I was about four or five. And they spoke Yiddish always when they didn't want us to understand, but um, they didn't really, it's one of my great regrets that I don't speak Yiddish. I mean, of course, as most immigrant kids, my wife is Italian. She, one of her great regrets is her parents didn't teach her Italian. But that, that was the way it was, but they did. And in fact, my mother used to tell me when she first went to school, she called a fork, I think, a ma's leg, which is, I think, the Yiddish word for fork. Um, she didn't know any English when she went to school, I don't think. Um, so the Jewish identity was, was quite important. And of course, Israel became a state in '48, um, and and you know it was after the Holocaust, and that was something that at least a certain not all Jews were involved in. It. Some Jews didn't think it was a good idea, even in Cleveland. Um, but my family, they, we never had a discussion. It was just assumed Israel's a good thing. We have to support it. Um, we have to help it with you know its affairs, whether it's business or giving money or putting money in that little blue box and planting trees and forests and all this. And you never heard a word about it. Palestinians. I mean, not a word. I mean, you know, I had movies, black and white movies, when I was a kid because we had a projector, and there were pictures of that I remember of at least some tents that some Palestinians lived in that were in a refugee camp, probably in Gaza. But um, that—that's the most that, that I recall. And then the books we read. Um, you know, at that point there was huge propaganda about Israel. I mean, what I would now call propaganda. So I read Exodus which is a Leon Uris book, which I stayed home from school to finish because it was such a good book, in my view then. But of course, it's about uh, Palestinians, as I recall, you know, raping um, or abusing, so I think raping, uh, you know, a, a Jewish-Israeli woman. Um, and it's part of the whole propaganda narrative uh, of that. And, and then becomes a movie with Paul Newman. Right, and then becomes a movie and et cetera. So this is, this is a period when this, uh, the state of Israel was pushed and pushed and not just by Israelis, I think. I mean, not just by the Jewish people in, in the U.S., but by, by others as well. Um, it's, a, it's an important point, and, and, and you say you weren't aware of it, and probably most Jewish families weren't aware, but it was a real debate. Uh, the, the, the idea that uh, there was a big movement to allow Jewish refugees that were sitting in refugee camps in Europe to come to the United States, and there was a lot of anti-Semitic, racist opposition to letting them in, 
But the Zionist organizations were against allowing Jewish refugees to come to the United States. In fact, may... There's a quote from Truman where he says, I don't understand it. I, I'm willing to stick my neck out because he, he himself, I think, was fairly anti-Semitic, but surrounded by anti-Semites. And he says, uh, I'm willing to stick my neck out and let the Jewish refugees in, and I'm meeting with the Zionist organizations, and they're telling me not to do it. And there's a new book, apparently, about Truman's relationship to how he was willing to recognize Israel, and it's, again, a huge push by Jewish community people. He himself was probably not in favor of it. Um, and within the Jewish community, there was some debate, um, not just about the refugees, but there were were Jews who felt this is not a good idea. Why are we doing this? Um, there's another people there. This is going to hurt Jews uh, in the whole world to do something like this. Uh, so there was debate, but we were not aware of it. Even in Cleveland, there was debate, and, but, but it, not something that came into my family. In 1956, I went to Israel for two months. I was 13 years old. It was obviously a bar mitzvah present of some sort. Um, and I have nothing but incredibly wonderful memories of it. You know, it was a new country. Um, you didn't really see Palestinians. Um, you just saw a beautiful desert and ruins and big beaches. Um, and, you know, I went and then, and, you know, just, it was, and there was all the places that I thought that my actual ancestors uh, walked on. And it was, I was a 13-year-old kid. And so there's a real sense of identity, continuity. I came back really romantically, you know, in love with the place. And, um, and, Anyway, so it was, it, was a, it was really important. I came back, I even painted a picture of a map of Israel on, on my room, and I had all the songs and all of that, and that was not completely unusual for people of my generation who were Jewish. Uh, you go again in 61. I go again in 61 with my family. I'm still pretty, I'm still quite involved in Israel, not in any sense of, you know, thinking about it all the time, but I still don't have any politics around the issue. Um, and I went with probably some cousins and some others. And that's the one thing I do remember on that, and it's still what Israel would say today. We went into the prime minister's office, and just as a visit, I think, just they took tourists or people in there. And there's a map, really, that's got to be 40 feet across and 25 feet high of the Middle East. It's the Mediterranean and the Middle East. All the countries are a certain color, I think brown. Israel is like a dot in the middle and is blue. And of course, what Israel, what that map is trying to say is we are a beleaguered country um, and everybody around us is trying to kill us and that's why we need support. Another way that we look at it, I would look at it today, is this was a, a, you know, an outpost of you know, Western settler colony in the Middle East that's only going to face toward Europe. But that's not what that map was about. This was something else. So that okay, was Okay, so how do you get from that kid to an adult sitting here who will say a sentence like that? With great difficulty, um, but not anymore at all, but with great difficulty during that period because at the 67 war, which was the war in which Israel took the occupied territories, took also Sinai, as well as the Golan Heights, as I, I think. The six-day Middle East war echoes along a second front, the diplomatic struggle at the United Nations Security Council. A series of emotionally charged meetings keeps delegates debating on nearly around-the-clock basis. Syrian Ambassador George Tomei charges Israel with continued ceasefire violations, saying that Israeli tank forces advanced toward a branch of the Jordan River to establish control of a strategically important water resource. He calls it systematic invasion. Israeli Ambassador Gideon Raphael answers the truce violation charges 
saying that his nation's troop and tank movements occurred before the ceasefire went into effect. Israeli government officers announced their victory wipes out previous armistice agreements and frontiers. That's the war that began to change my opinion. I didn't really understand what that war was about, and I really didn't understand the taking of, of Palestinian territory. I mean, that already took a lot during, in 48, but that wasn't something that I was conscious of. But in 67, I was conscious that there were millions of Palestinians living in the West, what we call the West Bank, and now the occupied territories, and that Israel had just captured it and had captured Sinai. Um, and, and that, because I, w I, had a, I had an emerging sense, I think, of, um, of, of that people have a right to self-determination. Yeah, why didn't you buy the argument? The argument was this war was forced on Israel and this occupation was necessary for defensive measures. Why didn't you buy that? You know, it didn't make any sense to me because I, I just thought Israel was so powerful um, and that it, it didn't seem right to me that, that they needed the entire West Bank for their defense. Um, and I, I can't say it was very well formulated. It was an intellectual feeling that this is wrong, that they're taking all these Palestinians um, and they're making them into, and they're occupiers, essentially. And, but that was an intellectual feeling. Emotionally, I couldn't break with my attachment. It was very hard. And so, and I think what I would say, and it's probably true of more Jews than we think, I was probably disabled from really speaking out because of that conflict. Because I understood um, that what was going on in the Middle East and with Israel was wrong. Um, that it was act, acting as a settler imperialist country. Um, I may not have had the language at that point in 67 to say that, um, but that's what I understood. And my emotions were still so strongly tied to this is the land of my people uh, and probably the Holocaust, but particularly the land of my people. And I had, we all have tons of relatives in Israel. Um, so how does that start to change for you? Yeah, that, I mean, I think it starts to change when I put um, the U.S. and Israel in particular into a broader movement, uh, a broader politics that I began to develop, um, particularly, I think, around Vietnam, most likely. Um, because Vietnam, as we talked about, starts, you know, starts early in my career at college, goes through law school and you know, through mid-60s and 70s. Um, and there was the first my real awakening that the U.S. is just an immoral country. Um, and perhaps, and the U.S. is at that point still a very big supporter of Israel. And, that we, and I started now to examine some of the assumptions I had growing up. Main one being that the U.S. is a moral country that's going to do good for all the people in the world. The Kennedy-esque vision. I guess I would call it the Kennedy-esque vision, and there's still much conflict about <laughs> how accurate that, that view of his vision is. Um, but, and I think that Israel then got filled in into that, and as I developed over the next years through the 70s and into the 80s, um, I really began to see Israel, I mean, I looked at what Israel had been doing. It was, you know, supporting apartheid in South Africa. Uh, as I worked in the 80s in Central America, it was, you know, training, uh, sending trainers uh, into Argentina and other places to train people like the Contras who were fighting against, uh, you know, the liberation movements in Nicaragua and then in other places. Uh, so I began to see that Israel's role uh, was one which I, which I just found completely unacceptable for my broader anti-imperialist politics. Speaking out uh, as a Jew, openly crit crit critiquing Israel, especially, uh, when, when do you get to New York? Oh, by 19... 
66, I'm in New York, yeah, 67. So, I mean, particularly in New York, to be a, a Jew going through law school, uh, to speak openly and critically of Israel, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, even now, but especially then. Um, when, at first you describe being kind of confused yourself or a little ambig ambivalent, ambivalent or trying to make sense of it, but when it starts to get clear for you, when do you start to speak out and, and how big a deal is that? Well, you know, even, even today, as you said, it's still, in New York can be very difficult and people get harassed for it or they get their speaking engagements canceled. I've just seen two or three this week that in New York where they just say, we're not going to have the speaker, and, you know, we're going to have to wrap it in this or that and with another speaker. So it's still very difficult. When I started really speaking out with knowledge, I would say probably not till quite late, probably till the 80s where I felt I was, you know, smart enough to really, knew enough to be able to, uh, to speak out, getting to know Palestinians was probably very important on that, uh, on, you know, on that adventure. And also because I was in such a progressive community by that time, of anti, what you call them, anti-imperialists, and you know, um, particularly around the Central America wars, um, that that I think that 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 allowed me a, a certain sense of freedom because I had a community that would protect protect me. It wasn't just me going out there. And speaking, it was a community of people. Is, it, is there a moment where you can remember, or a period where you kind of really let go of that part of you? Boy, but I've really let go of it. I've really, I mean, I mean, this is a strong issue for me. I mean, um, you know, I think the the final. I mean, it was way before because I tried to go on a trip to Gaza, maybe a half, ten, seven, eight years ago, and we couldn't get into Gaza. I was with Code Pink, one of your former people here. Actually, Medea led the trip, Medea um, Benjamin. And we couldn't get in, and so I was with my children who always were raised very progressive on Israel. So by that time, it was obvious from the beginning, my kids are 25 and 24. So that means at least 25 years ago when they were born, they never heard really anything good about Israel uh, or about what it was doing or what the U.S. was doing with Israel. But we took them. They wanted to go to Gaza. We couldn't get in. We flew to, it's the first time I've been, we flew to, Tel Aviv, then went to the West Bank, went to Jerusalem, went to the West Bank. And they were, um, I never spent any time in Israel itself. And that was, and that was astonishing. I mean, if, there's, if you ever want to talk to anybody about Palestine and Israel, just send, send them to Hebron and see one of the most discriminatory, outrageous treatment of human beings you will ever see, with small little pockets of Israeli Jews in the middle of a huge, thriving Palestinian community and what it has done to that Palestinian community. People threw rocks at us. We were there with a Palestinian um, and they threw rocks at my children um, and my children talked to other young kids who had the heck beaten out of them by the few Jewish settlers uh, that were in Hebron. And from that point on, I mean before then obviously I was quite incredibly progressive. But now, I mean, I don't think there's any rational argument to make uh, about what Israel has done, not just in the occupied territories, but of course in Israel itself. And uh, we interviewed Michael when he came back from that trip, and we'll put a link to that interview somewhere around this I video box. Cool. <laughs> yeah, we. I think it was just in a few weeks. We had, right. and you, we had all your photographs and such. So that was the final moment for you. I think going to Hebron was the final moment where I felt really confident enough, having seen it, to write about it. Um, and to really talk about it. 
Um, how do this sit with your siblings? Who, who, you have a, a brother, a sister who grew up in the same household with the same kind of influences and, well, they're and very, other parts of your family? I mean, it, you know, my family is very varied. It has everybody from, you know, I have a huge family. It's like probably a hundred, I mean, I have eight brothers, and my father, eight brothers and sisters, so there's 25 first cousins just on my father's side. There's probably, you know, there's a hundred. And so it varies like every, any community varies, I think. Um, and you have people who, you know, have, have a heavy belief in the state of Israel and the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, and then you have people in the middle who believe in, you know, that it's completely occupation being is just outrageous, but Israel itself should be able to be there. And it's not so bad and it is a democracy there. And then you have people, fewer like me, um, that are, you know, that, that just believe, ultimately believe that it's a one-state one solution. Um, that this should be an equal, equal citizenship for every single person, um, person there. And it will go back to 48 and what happened in 48 when 700 villages were cleansed and all that. So I'd say like any family, it varies, particularly Jewish families, it varies along a wide spectrum. Um, I would be certainly on, on, the, on the far end of that spectrum. Within my immediate family, I'm quite liberal about, about the issue. All right, please join us for the next part of our interview with Michael Ratner on Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.